Well, that was great. Uh, Mike, wonderful overview of some complex issues and thank you for the discussion with Rafi. I'm going to move on to our next speaker who is interestingly Rafi Landowitz. So <laughs> I'm going to introduce you to Rafi, who is a professor of medicine at the UCLA Center for Clinical AIDS Research and Education and is the center co-director. He's led a numerous studies on combination prevention interventions and projects using post-exposure and pre-exposure prep strategies for uh, MSM and transgender women. Uh, he's part of the leadership group of the DAIDS funded AIDS clinical trials group network and HIV prevention trials network and the former adolescent trials network leading the field in studies related to pre-exposure prophylaxis. He recently completed a term as chair of the ACTG's antiretroviral strategies scientific committee and is leading the phase two and phase three registrational clinical trials, evaluating long-acting injectable cabotegravir for PrEP. He serves on the executive committee for the HIV prevention trials network. And I love this last little tidbit about Rafi. He was awarded the HIV Medicine Association HIV Research Award in 2017 for the work that he has done uh, which has been really groundbreaking work looking at long-acting injectables for uh, PrEP. So he's going to talk to us this morning about challenges and opportunities in HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis and offer you the latest information in 2021 about this topic. Thank you so much, Connie. And um, I apologize to you all that you're probably sick of me already. Um, these are my disclosures. Um, our learning objectives today um, are going to be to talk a lot about, as Connie mentioned, I've been sort of immersed in long-acting injectable prep um, uh, and the HPTN 083 study, which over the last year we've shared the results of at a couple of conferences and, and some challenges that I think this is going to bring to the prep field um, as we get long-acting prep agents. Um, uh, and other important issues around testing and around the potential for generation of resistant virus that could have implications for the therapy we choose for people who um, acquire HIV despite the use of these PrEP agents. Um, those of you who have heard me talk on this topic before are very familiar with this graphic. This is my way of summarizing the available randomized clinical trial data um, for TDF-FTC or Truvada-based PrEP. Um, that really showed that, you know, across a variety of populations and a variety of circumstances, we had very varied point estimates um, for the efficacy of PrEP that early on created a lot of consternation and confusion for providers and consumers of does it work, how forgiving is it, how what's the onset of protection, what are the implications if it doesn't work, can it work for cisgender women for vaginal protection, and, you know, can it work for um, sort of a pericoital on-demand strategy? And the answer, of course, is yes to those questions. It works, you know, for vaginal exposures, it works for rectal exposures, it can work in a pericoital or two-on-one um, pattern for MSM. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of it depends on taking it as prescribed in the, each of those contexts. But it's clear that not everyone benefits from uh, equally from from TDF FTC prep, and it really spurred the you know the ongoing search for additional prep agents, and really pushed the field to what I sort of call to prep 2.0, and that was new prep agents and new ways of delivering um, pre-exposure prophylaxis for those at risk but not living with HIV. Um, and on the left side, we have two phase three registrational trials of a depivirine ring, depivirine, of course, a um, non-nuclear a reverse transcriptase inhibitor that's not available as an oral preparation that showed 30% protection um, in randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials and now has gotten regulatory approvals in Europe through the EMA and is before the FDA for um, uh, consideration of approval here in the United States. And of course, the DISCOVER trial comparing TAF-FTC or F-TAF to FTDF um, uh, in uh, gay men and transgender women um, showing uh, uh, non-inferiority for that agent with some sensitive biomarkers and studies that um, suggested um, perhaps a better safety profile, but no difference in clinical outcomes between those arms, leading to regulatory approvals for FTAF for um, all routes of exposure except for vaginal um, at this point. But again, not everyone benefits equally from these PrEP interventions. And there is this notion that the stigma around taking a medication that's associated with HIV treatment um, uh, that's difficult to remember to operationalize on a daily basis could have side effects, a number of other structural, social, um, environmental barriers made the idea of something that could be injected and discreet um, uh, attractive to study. And it was in that context that HPTN 083 was designed. And, you know, um, many of you know that this is something that I've been very invested in over the last few years. And, and um, we, we were really excited in the last year to report the results of this trial. I'm going to show you the study design here briefly and then go into the results. And then we'll delve into some of the nuance I think we're all going to be struggling with clinically um, with, with the rollout of these long-acting PrEP agents that hopefully we can think together and strategize about how to leverage the power and also the complexity of, of this intervention. So HIV uninfected individuals at increased risk um, for HIV acquisition were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either the orange arm on this slide or the blue arm. Orange is the cabotegravir arm. Blue is the TDF-FTC arm. The TDF-FTC was administered daily. Um, people who were in the cabotegravir arm took a TDF-FTC placebo every day and then got um, an oral five-week lead-in of cabotegravir and then injections every eight weeks. Um, people who were in the TDF-FTC arm got an active tdf um, FTC pill and then sham injections and a sham oral lead-in. Anyone who stopped the injections early got a year of open label TDF FTC for PrEP as the pharmacokinetic tail washed out of people's systems. And we presented these results, the primary results of this, um, in two buckets. So let me sort of walk you through this briefly. Um, we did enroll about 4,500 um, participants at the time the study was stopped by the DSMB at the NIH in May of 2020. And we presented the initial results at AIDS 2020 last July. And um, the top half of the slide are those results. In the cabotegravir arm, there were 13 incident infections, incidence rate 0.41 per 100 person years, and 39 in the TDF-FTC arm, 
for hazard ratio in the right side of the slide of 0.34. So that's a 66% reduction in HIV incidence of the cabotegravir arm compared to the TDF-FTC arm, and that was a superiority result. But what we learned um, when we were sort of doing the pre-planned analyses, which involved centralized testing of stored specimens, is that cabotegravir, even more so than TDF-FTC, obfuscates conventional HIV testing. Why? Well, it turns out that cabotegravir, not surprisingly, as an integration inhibitor, is a potent antiviral. And even as monotherapy suppresses viremia, can even make it undetectable, at least for a period of time, and delays antigen and antibody expression, delaying the ability of more conventional diagnostics, largely antibody-based, but sometimes nucleic acid-based, in identifying these infections. So in this central lab, we used sensitive qualitative and quantitative RNA testing going all the way back to enrollment on um, the specimens um, in, in 083 that we had stored. And we had a little bit of a revised um, efficacy uh, outcome that we presented at CROI 2021 this year. Um, and that's on the bottom half of this slide. So one of the HIV infections that we thought was incident in the cab arm, turns out, was there at the beginning. It was in the eclipse or, or um, window period. Um, but that was not picked up on site-based testing, but it was on central laboratory testing, giving us finally 12 incident infections in the, in the cab arm and an unchanged number in the TDF-FTC arm. Um, and you might say, well, on the right side of the slide, it really didn't change the hazard ratio very much. It doesn't change the interpretation. So why do you care? Well, I'll tell you in a second why we care. Um, as soon as I tell you a little bit more about safety, because I think everybody is concerned, you know, with a new product, are there safety concerns? And really, the main thing that we saw that was different between the two arms were, not surprisingly, injection site reactions. 80% of the people who were getting active cabotegravir had some injection site reaction. You can see it declined over time in this slide as people got serial injections. But there was about a 30% rate of um, injection site reactions um, in people who were getting the sham or placebo injection. Um, you can see from the color coding, green is mild, yellow is moderate, red is severe, that happily most of them were mild to moderate. But when people do have a severe reaction, and that was about 2.2% of our participants, it did lead to a much increased rate of 75-fold odds of discontinuation of the injectable study product. So injections aren't going to be for everyone. And a lot of discussion ongoing about with implementation, you know, should you premedicate and what things can we do um, to minimize the chance of an injection site reaction, particularly while it's required to be given as a gluteal injection. Of course, additional injection sites are currently being explored for bioequivalents that may expand that. But for right now, it does have to be delivered as a gluteal injection. A lot of people were also interested in weight changes. A lot of buzz right now, of course, about integrase inhibitor um, associated weight gain in people living with HIV. And of course, the PrEP space, a really in intriguing context in which to probe this question. Um, and we did look at this in 083. And what I'll tell you is overall, we did see a greater increase in weight um, in the cabotegravir arm, 1.3 kilograms per year compared to the TDF-FTC arm. Um, about a kilogram lower than that, 0.31. But what's really interesting is that's really driven by what happens in the first year on treatment, where a cabotegravir, you get about a kilogram and a half, and the TDF-FTC, you lose about a half a kilogram. And then after that, it's really identical. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting. It makes you wonder if sort of the GI side effects of TDF-FTC in that first year are really what's driving these differences um, absent HIV 
um, uh, being in the mix here. So lots more to come about that. But I thought that was provocative and interesting. You know, and when I say and then we observed something unexpected, I'm hearkening back to this testing that we did um, that changed the primary efficacy interpretation. So this is a little bit of a busy slide. I'm going to zip through it. But um, on the left side is what we did at the sites. And what's important here is that every visit when someone came in, the site did a rapid test, a point of care test, an antibody test, um, and then an, a laboratory based, so an instrumented antigen antibody test. Um, and at screening, we did a, an RNA um, within 14 days before starting, before starting anyone on PrEP. Um, and then there were some reflex studies done if either the point of care rapid or the antigen antibody test were reactive. Um, at the follow-up visits. And, you know, as I mentioned, that was what was done in real time. On the middle and the right side of the slide um, is what was done on the central laboratory at Johns Hopkins, and that was done retrospectively. So when I talk about what we found, you have to remember that the information at the central laboratory wasn't available in real time to the sites. It was done after the study was unblinded in a post hoc way, and then we figured out some of these nuances. And what that suggested to us, as I mentioned, is there's this flickering of some of these tests. Cabotegravir is so potent that it could suppress viral replication. It can delay antigen and antibody production. And so instead of stopping when we found a negative set of tests, when we back tested from the site um, detected first um, positive visit, we went all the way back to enrollment. And when we did that, this is what we found. And those of you who sort of have been following this cabotegravir literature, well, remember this slide that I presented um, at AIDS 2020 that buckets um, the, the originally 13 incident and the two baseline or prevalent HIV infections that we found in the cabotegravir arm. And I bucketed them this way because the A cases were the prevalent cases. The B ones were the ones that happened a long time after anyone had received any active cabotegravir. The C ones were the ones that happened during the oral lead-in period, suggesting that that might be a period of vulnerability. And the D cases were the ones that happened despite on-time injections. And the reason I've boxed in red here, D2 and D4, is these are the ones where the timing of the first detection of HIV changed when we did this post-hoc additional testing. And if you'll pardon my animation, what you'll see here and keep your eyes on the green virus emojis here um, as I animate this slide, you can see that both D2 and D5, the timing of first detection on the post-hoc testing moved earlier in both those cases. And in the case of D5, it actually became a baseline infection. It's no longer um, uh, an incident case. And so we renamed it. We renamed D5A3. And when we did this additional testing, we actually found additionally another baseline case that we called A4. So what that meant was we lost one of our D cases and we ended up with four cases um, that were actually undetected during the window period before um, anybody received any PrEP product. So um, we do have um, a lot of detailed pharmacology and virology with some important lessons learned about each of these buckets. So again, Remember, that's how we got from the top half of this slide to the bottom half of this slide. Um, I hope that makes sense to people. And the reason I'm telling you this is we learned some important lessons. So what did we learn from the group A cases? There's four cases now, and I'm going to get a little bit into the unicorn weeds here, right? And I say unicorn because these were all very rare events. Remember, there's 4,570 participants in this trial, half of them got Cabo Chegravir, and we're delving into this because each one is sort of a unique case study 
that's telling us something important about long-acting PrEP that we need to pay attention to. So I hope you'll pardon my detail and in getting into the weeds a little here. So these are the four cases. I'm going to walk you through the first one a little bit carefully because there's a lot of information here. So let's look at A1 in the upper left corner. So this is um, um, a plot of the pharmacology and the testing results over time. So the orange dots that you see, those are the cabotegravir concentrations. And the horizontal lines that are dotted that you're seeing, those are the various thresholds that were derived from the MACAC or non-human primate prevention studies. So um, 1X, 4X, and 8X PAIC90, the top dotted line, 8X PAIC90, really above the threshold that we were targeting for protection from rectal challenge from those animal studies. So you can see the first time we check in A1, um, any cabotegravir levels during oral dosing that were above that 8X PAIC90 level. Um, and the red vertical line is the central laboratory testing time where we found evidence of infection. And the blue line is when the site detected the infection. So the site in detected the infection four weeks into the study here. But really, when we look really carefully with the central testing, you can see with the red line, it was there before any PrEP product was administered. And remember, that's despite the fact um, that we did an RNA test as well as a rapid and an antigen antibody test at screening. And we did a point of care, a rapid and an antigen antibody test at enrollment at that week zero visit before giving anybody a PrEP product. On the top above that A1 list, you can see the viral load on the central laboratory testing, had that been done, was 4,000. You can see what happened at the week two visit is cabotegravir monotherapy suppressed that viral load to less than 40. Interestingly, it was detected at week four when the viral load was 78. So you can see with, um, with all four of these cases, a similar pattern. The first time we detect cabotegravir at week two, it's at high levels as expected. So these people look like they were taking the cabotegravir as prescribed. Um, and some of these people, because the HIV wasn't detected on the site-based testing, went on to even get injections of cabotegravir. Those are the green vertical lines. And what I'd like to sort of point out here is the majority of these, we did not generate integrase inhibitor resistance. We do have genotypes, not on all of them, because sometimes the viral loads were too low. But in all four of these, the site-based testing was delayed compared with the central testing. Um, and what I'd like to show you here is this, this A1 case actually was exposed to basically TDF FTC resistant virus and infected with it before they ever got PrEP. So that's sort of fascinating. That's not something we see very often. Um, this case A2 um, is particularly interesting because we know we had wild type virus when the, the participant was first infected, but because of continued exposure to cabotegravir, developed integrase resistant mutations that would be expected to confer reduced susceptibility to the integrase class. Um, we didn't see that in the others um, here, um, but this person did suppress in a boosted protease inhibitor regimen. Um, we did not find other resistance in the A cases. Let me jump to the B cases, which were the ones that there was no recent CAB exposure to. Um, this is super interesting. And I say it's super interesting because we have examples here in B1, B4, B3, and B4 of somebody acquiring HIV really during the tail 
of cabotegravir. And those of you who've been following this long acting and the cabotegravir issues, um, you know, something we've wrung our hands a lot about is what's going to happen if someone acquires HIV during the tail? Um, and is it going to generate resistance? And, you know, um, we can talk more about it in the panel discussion if people are interested. But let me um, share with you that the answer is no. In B1, um, this person had non-nuke mutations, but no integrase mutations when the HIV was actually detected. They suppressed on a PI-based regimen. Case B2 is someone who never took cabotegravir at all, um, at least by pharmacology that we can tell. So again, like with TDF-FTC prep, you don't take it. It can't work for you. They never got injection, wild-type virus. They suppressed on an NNRTI-based regimen. B3, likely acquired infection during that pharmacokinetic tail. We can't tell you exactly when, but again, um, uh, wild-type virus, which I think is reassuring, um, but certainly doesn't mean that you can't get resistance from the tail, but we didn't. And now two of these cases, and I'll show you a third one um, here as well. This person also suppressed on a Favrins-based regimen. And here's B4, also someone who suppressed um, on an integrase-based regimen actually here after acquiring HIV during that pharmacokinetic tail, during which they opted not to take TDF-FTC to cover that tail. And B5, again, is, is someone who just didn't um, uh, uh, take any cabotegravir appreciably prior to infection um, and had wild-type virus suppressed on an integrase-based regimen. The oral breakthroughs, I think, are important, and I'm going to take a moment here. So these are the three people who broke through the oral phase. And remember, like TDF-FTC, where there's an onset to protection, um, cabotegravir oral or injectable likely has an onset to protection also, and we don't know exactly um, uh, what, that, um, what that looks like yet. We can't quantify it. But they all were delayed compared to site-based testing. Um, that's important. So the cabotegravir oral and then injectable delayed detection at the sites. Um, and, you know, in the C1 case, the first time we're detecting the cabotegravir, looks like they were taking it well. The levels were pretty much as expected, including once they got injectable. But by the time we're able to detect the, the viremia at the site, we have integrase inhibitor resistance, and that increases with accessory mutations over time, again, suggesting that we may be getting in a cross-class integrase resistance with accumulated mutations um, with ongoing exposure to this drug. Um, in C2, um, this person, again, didn't take any of the oral cab. They were lost to follow-up and then showed up about a year later. Um, again, if it doesn't work, if you don't take it, it's not going to work for you. So that case, not particularly illustrative. But let's look at C3 again. Again, someone who the first time we see them and follow up two weeks in is already has evidence of HIV infection, a five-week delay in detection compared to that done at the central laboratory at the sites. And again, integrase inhibitor resistance at the time it's diagnosed at the site. And again, happily, this person suppressed on a PI-based regimen. Let's look quickly um, at the group D infections. These are the ones on-time injections um, and people got HIV anyway. So this is D1. I'm going to go through each of these separately. D1, there was about a 16-week delay in detection at the site compared to the central lab. You can see the RNAs are very low and smoldering. When time it's detected at the site, the viral load's actually less than 40. So it's sort of fascinating that that's when the antigen antibody test at the site turned positive. 
Um, this person suppressed on a boosted PI-based ART regimen before we ever could get a genotype. So I can't tell you if there's low-level integrase resistance on those low-level viral loads, but they did suppress on a boosted PI. This case was particularly vexing because with um, the flickering of the site-based um, testing and a 14-week delay in detection, the, the participant didn't actually believe their own HIV diagnosis. And here, this shaded area between weeks 47 and 50, they actually went on a 28-day course of post-exposure prophylaxis because they did not believe that they were living with HIV at that time. And that 28-day course may have actually further complicated the diagnostics that were being done at the site. It wasn't until very late when finally viral loads became detectable, but at very low levels, that the participant actually believed um, the diagnosis and ultimately went on um, uh, to go on a, a fully suppressive ART regimen. We never got a genotype that was illustrative. Um, D3, another case where the delay was about 17 weeks. You can see the smoldering low levels of viremia. What's interesting is this 860 that you see at the week 17 visit actually let us get a genotype. And there was transmitted NNRTI resistance, but non-integrase resistance that lets us be sure that this person did get a treatment emergent integrase resistance mutation with ongoing exposure to cabotegravir. This is a different mutation than the Q148 mutations that we're seeing in the other participants. This is the R263K, um, which would not be as potent in, in providing cross-class resistance, but still is concerning as it's treatment emergent nonetheless. And the final case I want to tell you about is this one, and this is a very cautionary tale in my mind, because again, there was a about a six-week delay in diagnosis at the site. Um, uh, happily, the site does make the diagnosis despite these very low levels of viremia. The antigen antibody test was positive. But what you can see here is it takes about three months to navigate this person, and it's a non-U.S. site, I'll share that, um, to the local ART program. And in the time that happens, the viral load goes from the hundreds to the hundred thousands. And what happens is by the time they get to clinical care, they have integrase-based resistance. So that's really important and a lesson learned that when you have um, somebody with diagnosed HIV infection breaking through a cabotegravir-based PrEP, you've got to get them on suppressive ART quickly. Um, so I'm going to be zippy here because I don't want to go over time. I will tell you that the reason people acquired HIV in the TDF-FTC arm is exactly what you would have expected. A little complicated slide, but I'll summarize it for you. 37 of the 39 incident infections in the Truvada arm, the TDF-FTC arm, were because people didn't take the Truvada, full stop. There are two cases um, that I can't tell you that that's true. One was transmission of resistant virus. One, I'm just not sure, but the other 37 were non-adherence. I do want to mention that these data that we found in 083 are generalizable to cisgender women in sub-Saharan Africa. Our, our sister study, HPTN 084, um, a very similar design was stopped by the DSMB in November of last year and had an even more dramatic outcome than we did in 083, a 90% reduction in incident HIV infections in cabotegravir compared to TDF-FTC. This is the Kaplan-Meier curve, and that's going to allow, hopefully, regulatory approvals across populations for this prevention intervention and not run into some of the challenges that FCAF had with um, differential population approvals. So 
I do want to close by saying I now call this prep 3.0. We're going to include Cabo Tegravir in this on the right side with the incidence rates in the two pivotal trials. And now, of course, we have phase three clinical trials of some really other exciting monthly um, oral agents and injectable lenacapavir for an every six months subcutaneous injection that we'll all be watching very carefully. I do think the lessons learned here are that, however, um, while these long-acting agents can be highly um, protective and exciting, and generate even superior results, probably because of the better sex act coverage, um, and people do tolerate them well, this delayed detection and the possibility of um, treatment emergent resistance compromising future treatment options are something we really need to pay attention to. And this delays in detection aren't going to be unique to cabotegravir. I suspect, suspect all the long acting agents are going to do them. Uh, have this property, and we're going to really need better point of care, inexpensive, deployable diagnostics to really see the the generalizable benefit of these agents. So better diagnostics needed. Let's not let that be an impediment to leveraging the, the benefits of this. I'll stop there. Thank you so much for your attention, and uh, I'm happy to answer questions. Well, Thank you, Rafi, for a wonderful discussion. And uh, I think you've raised some really critical points that many of us haven't thought about in with regard to some of these issues in long-acting prep. So while we're waiting for Q&A from the audience, maybe I'll start off by asking you to delve a little more Deeply, not that you didn't delve deeply into some very interesting and provocative cases, but um, trying to put some of the information you presented about those cases that broke through during the studies into clinical practice. How does this delay in detection of breakthrough infections with cabotegravir get translated into clinical practice when you talk about what you should be doing in your practice to monitor people who are getting cabotegravir uh, regimens for PrEP? Yeah, thanks, Connie. And I think that's the million-dollar question that's derived out of this study. And, you know, the CDC um, has been thinking about this, knowing these results also. And I don't know if people have seen just this week, they released new draft clinical guidance um, that um, is out for public comment, and it includes recommendations, assuming there are U.S. regulatory approvals of cabotegravir, that viral load be the primary monitoring testing modality um, for cabotegravir. Um, and I think that's a fascinating recommendation. Um, my gut is that's going to be the right answer, but we don't know for sure yet, because obviously that's a more sensitive test. That's a more costly test. Um, is it going to send us down a rabbit hole of finding false positives too often and give both providers and patients an enormous amount of anxiety and complexity? Or is it going to end up being a critical and mandatory part of these long-acting PrEP monitoring um, processes um, to detect uh, these, in, these infections earlier and get people on suppressive therapy to prevent resistance? And we're going to be interrogating that now in the open-label phase of 083 and 084, um, to try and get some data to support that. But it, it, I thought it was fascinating that CDC went there 
Um, and that's obviously not final guidance yet. It's out for draft discussion, but that seems to be where things are, are headed. That was going to be one of my questions for our panel discussion, but you've uh, successfully avoided that one. So, <laughs> um, but uh, just there are several uh, comments from the audience also related to these provocative data. So um, what tests were used in the look back to detect cases that were not initially detected at the site during this delay period? Yeah, thanks. Um, and I apologize for flying through those slides. Um, you know, after the course, when um, the slides are made available, people can go back and sort of list, look at the details. But um, what we did centrally at the HPTN Laboratory Center on every specimen was we did an architect antigen antibody test. Um, if it were reactive, we did a genius discriminatory test. We did a an Aptima qualitative RNA test, which is estimated, although qualitative, to have a threshold of detection of about 30 copies per mil. Um, and then for uh, Aptimas that were positive, we reflexed to quantitative RNA testing. And if we were unable to have at least two orthogonal, so different testing mechanisms to confirm a test, we actually went um, to um, single copy assays that we partnered with the University of Pittsburgh lab, John Meller's lab, um, to do that work to try and get, you know, two, at least two different mechanisms to confirm a, a diagnosis. Obviously, that's not available for clinical practice, so you're not going to do that. So looking at the aggregate data, I do think on uh, what we are calling an ultra-sensitive, but basically a sensitive viral load assay that's used in clinical practice is probably going to be the most practical thing. Of course, it's not, it doesn't have regulatory approvals for diagnostics right now. And we look forward to newer assays like Aptima's, um, you know, new um, quant assay, you know, that goes down to 13 copies and is supposedly going to be inexpensive. So if that gets, you know, FDA clearance, that might be something that's attractive if it's scalable and usable. Yeah, I think there's no way individual clinical sites are going to be able to do that kind of exhaustive uh, testing that you did in the clinical trials. So hopefully the guidance will address that issue with sensitive viral load tests. Um, one of our audience members asks, um, why not use two drug long acting or two long acting agents? for prevention that might avoid the tail resistance and uh, some of the other issues that you raised uh, about emergence of resistance mutations? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question. You know, certainly, um, uh, you know, I think people are are wondering um, about, you know, two drugs versus one drugs, integrase inhibitors thought to be, you know, quite potent. Is it necessary um, remember that the tail was not the issue here, surprisingly, right? Um, I think we all have had a lot of concern, the tail, the tail, the tail. We all rang our hands, wrung our hands um, about that. And, you know, this doesn't exonerate it, but the three cases we had of tail phase HIV acquisition, those weren't the resistant ones. It's when you break through at high cavotegravir concentrations. And that's a little frustrating because I don't have a good explanation or why those four D-case infections happened. But what I can tell you is it results in smoldering low-level viral loads in plasma. Um, and then when it breaks through for that, you get a jump in viral load. 
um, that's when you get the resistance, the high cabotegravir concentrations. And virologists that I've talked to, John Mellers, Dan Karitskis, and others say that's not a surprise to the virology community. Um, it's the, it's when you force resist, uh, replication at high agent concentration that you get resistance, not during the waning portion. So they're not surprised by these results. I was surprised. I guess I was thinking about it sort of upside down, but they're not surprised. Yeah, well, they may not be surprised in the short term, but I think if you do expose someone to long term, low level, um, low drug levels in as a single agent, you eventually do incur resistance mutations. It's a time related issue. So maybe the tail isn't long enough in the context of stopping cabotegravir for us to see that phenomenon. But we do know that people who are failing therapy for a long period of time and have low drug levels um, eventually get resistance mutations. Uh, Another question from the audience, is cabotegravir effective in cis women as well or just MSM? I think you covered this briefly in 084. You haven't quite gotten to the full data set from 084 yet. but Yeah, I believe the 084 team is hoping to present additional data on resistance and PK um, at an upcoming conference soon, but they're still working on it. But it does work very well arguably even better for cisgender women with 90% um, reduction compared to TDFFTC, which is really exciting. Um, then one, another question for you, just maybe more from your clinical practice than from clinical trial experience. Um, what is your patient profile in terms of people who are wanting to use cabotegravir for uh, prep? Are there differences related to race and ethnicity, gender, economic, socioeconomic groups, um, other kinds of patient population issues? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it's a really important question. You know, um, we don't have regulatory approvals yet, so um, I can't really comment on who's going to vote with their feet and want it and what the challenges are going to be. Um, I think with the initial approvals, it's going to have to be delivered in a healthcare setting. So I think, you know, having to come into a clinic every two months, some people are not going to like that. Some people aren't going to want that. Um, I think if we're able to expand and deploy the context in which it could be administered, home-based nursing, community-based venues, non-medicalized venues, pharmacies, I think we might get broader uptake. We did have um, a racially and ethnically diverse group in the study um, that showed at least in a study context, and that obviously we always wonder if it's generalizable to the to everyone else. Um, you know um, that the the it, the effectiveness was preserved or even greater in some of those um, those populations who showed less benefit from oral prep. So that was really really exciting and gratifying. Well, great. So um, thank you to our audience members who posted questions in the Q&A. We're going to have to move on to our next discussion now.